Hello, this is Future Mike. I'm here with an apology for the quality of the audio for my half of this episode. Uh, I was recording this podcast from an audio booth that I was slightly unfamiliar with, and due to a non-calculated error on my part, my audio is essentially straight from my laptop microphone, which, if you've ever recorded anything, you will know that the microphone on your laptop is basically made out of garbage. So if my audio sounds a little rough this time around, that's why. I'm sorry. Mike, can you interpret my dreams with psychology? Ooh, you know, I can try. But really, in the end, every time I try to interpret a dream, I end up on WebMD, and I'm, I'm just going to diagnose you with a uh, need for um, removal of a limb. Wow. Yeah, you're, prob- you're probably right. I think it's funny that it takes you straight to WebMD. Well, all roads lead to Rome in the end. That's true. That's true. We're talking about psychology today. We are. Uh, You know that I was a psychology major uh, as an undergraduate. You sure about that? Um, I'm definite about that. (laughs) And in fact, uh, it was, uh, uh, I'm not a psychologist now. Mm. So so I, I think it would be easy to assume that I'm not. Uh, that I didn't go to school for psychology. I, I did notice that you're not currently a psychologist somewhere along the line. Yeah, although there are definitely times when I'm at work and I'm in a room talking to someone and I do feel like we're making progress. <laughs> so what were your motivations for studying psychology at the time? Oh, good question. Um, you know what, without getting into like my own problems with my mother, you know, which of <laughs> course we'd have to talk about, um, which is what led me to psychology, ironically or paradoxically or not. You know, I, I'd taken a psychology class in high school and I thought that it was fascinating that there were ideas that that could be, uh, that I, uh, theories that could explain how and why people did things. And the class that I'd taken was a big overview of like the usual suspects. So it starts with the classical behaviorists like, like um, uh, Pavlov and then move on to Skinner and then uh, other theories that are sort of like Maslow's hierarchy and the Philip Zimbardo research. And, you know, it was definitely a really good guided tour of the uh, psychology's greatest hits. And mm. so it seemed like if I was going to fritter away time as an undergraduate getting a degree in a liberal art, that it might as well be psychology. And um, because I found it, I found it kind of interesting. And as it turned out, I, I was supposed to be going to school as a pre-med student and I'd been accepted into the stuff and I didn't want to be a doctor because sick people bug me. I don't like blood. I don't really like doctors. So it would have been a bad choice for a lot of reasons, but my parents were pretty sure that they'd send me off to be a pre-med. What we do at work is very much about psychology. And I don't mean that in a sort of a patronizing way, but like quite literally the decisions that we make about laying out an interface or even figuring out what content to put in places is heavily dependent on a psychological explanation for human behavior. It's not that it's the only explanation, obviously. I think sociology explains a fair amount of of uh, social phenomena um, and behavioral uh, patterns. But, uh, you know, I think there's no single science that's figured it out all out. One of the things that I think was a revelation for me was that design in itself always seemed like a black art, like it was something that you had a an intuition for or you didn't. 
and that it was in some way inherent that you were able to do something design oriented or maybe even just artistically oriented to begin with. And I don't really remember specifically what got me from thinking that it was something that was inherent to your soul, so to say, um, from there to understanding that it's something that can be taught and learned and perhaps most importantly, scientifically understood in a way that's repeatable and bears meaning. But getting to there was an important understanding for me. And I think that's what made me really, really attached to changing from being just a software developer to being a, a designer or someone that was um, attuned to user experience and psychology and, and the like. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because uh, I think that there's, uh, it, I don't know that that uh, design can be can be produced just purely that way. Like there's definitely a point where like music, for example, you could understand a great deal about musical theory. You could be able to think about like, you know, the most complex of musical ideas in the abstract, but, you know, if sit down and jam with a group of people and you might be impossible to play with. Mm -hmm. And I'll mangle this quote, but I think John Lennon said, give an artist a tuba and they'll make music. Mm. Um, and so they, they, I think that there's, there is some part of that, which is some sort of innate talent. I guess this, this is a topic for another, another conversation, but I think what, what you're describing is sort of like the understanding of things like gestalt psychology, the understanding of design principles like hierarchy and structure and scale and, um, sure. to be able to, to, to be able to apply those rules to pixels or um, something and create an effective design. And I right. think there, there might be a difference between someone who has that seemingly innate sense. What they're seeing is effectively what in, informed the creation of those rules or informed the discovery of those principles. But then they're able to do it without even really having to think about what it is that they're doing. So right. it may be a little bit different, but but I think the the things about psychology that I know that we've spoken about, which have huge impact on this notion of design and design principles, are things like Albo's color and that you know how certain colors elicit certain emotional responses. And um, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna have to let me stop you there. What explain that? I don't know what Albo's color is. Well, uh, Joseph Albo's the. Um, color principles, color theory, and about, uh, you know, the uh, warm color tones and blue, uh, and sorry, warm and cool colors and what mm -hmm. sort of emotional responses that you, that they tend to give. That's why hospitals tend to, you know, generally use like light greens and light blues. There's a sort of a peaceful sort of a vibe. You wouldn't use red in a hospital because that would be amazing because it looks like blood. So it would be easy to clean up or ignore the mess. <laughs> but the, um, you know, if you if you've ever wondered um, idly why so many fast food companies have a predominance of reds or reddish, orangish uh, colors in their in their trade dress, it's because those are colors that excite and arouse and are generally tied to um, you know. So that I guess the extension is that when you see those colors, your body will be like, man, I need a happy meal. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So you'll have to pardon my ignorance and, and uh, pardon the pun even more so that I'm showing my colors here. Uh, <laughs> absolutely something that I'm familiar with just uh, didn't have the name attached to it, which is maybe a cardinal sin for, for a uh, heady designer. Oh, uh, well, I think, you know, uh, certainly he's been dead for a while. So 
you're not dissing anyone who's going to come and kick your ass. <laughs> yeah, tell that to the hordes on Twitter. Uh, I know that that we've we've spoken about how it's sort of amazing that there is a sort of a scientific justification for the or foundation for why things seem to look right to us and why things seem to look wrong. Why we have a sense of visual balance. And even if we're not even if we're not even if you're not a designer, that you may very well be able to see if something seems to be off kilter or unbalanced, and that's that's sort of a that intuition maybe. Yeah, yeah. But there's and a then, reason why it feels that way, and that's like your brain is making sense of the visual stimulus in a way, and it's sort of like that. That layout makes my brain happy. When you go to art school, then you learn you learn the words to describe what's making your brain happy. And if you study the psychology of it, then you can probably game the system a bit. Sure. And, and then just like all these great rules, uh, I think competent designers can follow the principles and follow the rules and make competent designs. Brilliant designers break the rules knowingly mm-hmm. for effect. And so... You know, that's where, like in, in photography, the, these sort of cardinal rules, I suppose, are never put your subject in the center of a por- portrait, you know, like smack dab in the middle. Well, I don't know, but if you've ever seen Deanna Arbus's portraits where she shoots in a square format, like Instagram, only with film and a real camera, and, and she, she made some stunning portraits, especially because she put those people square in the middle. So... Mm. Uh, you know, that um, never point a camera at the sun, all those rules, and like don't backlight your subjects. I don't know. There are times when that's exactly what you want to do. And if you know how to do it and you know why, then breaking the rule makes the most sense. And that's yeah. maybe the difference between, you know, sort of like the I can do this and I can get paid to do it or I can do it and I blow people's minds. Right. Yeah. And I I think on some level, there's the collegial understanding of design and principles and theories and all of this stuff. And when you get to a certain uh, echelon of understanding what you're doing and you start to break those rules, that's really where you start to develop your skills and your reputation and maybe even your signature style in any of these different media that we're talking about. Uh, Maybe it reflects a bit on, on my own experience that these aren't all places where I'm comfortable breaking the rules, but I think that it's just like anything else. You really have to have a good understanding of how everything works and why the rules are there and playing within the rules before you can break outside of them. Yep. That's exactly right. I guess it's, uh, you know, break the rules well. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Cause otherwise it's just sloppy, but uh, I mean, uh, I was listening to Robert Johnson mm-hmm. uh, recently. In fact, um, Here's a trippy sort of a twist. A friend of mine and I were talking about Steve Vai. Okay. Because he just bought, this friend of mine just bought one of those Ibanez gems. You know, the yeah. Steve Vai Ibanez with the cutout for the hand grip do, thing that you could carry, like as if I'm, you know, it's a briefcase. Yeah, And absolutely. this guitar, it's, it's beautiful. It is absolutely, it's beautiful. And um, this friend has like the, you know, the magic talents. Again, I don't even know if they're magic. I can't do it, so I assume it's magic. Magical talents to set the, the action and the intonation so perfectly. This this guitar played like it was uh, under ESP control. Actually, that's a funny sure. pun, right? Weren't there guitars called ESPs? <laughs> so playing it becomes an immediately sublime 
sort of thing because it's just so perfect. We were talking about Steve Vai, talking about Crossroads, the movie with Ralph Macchio, which was such a terrible movie. But And Steve Vai plays the so-called devil who Ralph Macchio has to have a guitar face-off. Um, and it's somewhat the, you know, it's connected to the famous story of Robert Johnson who sold his soul to the devil at the intersection of Highway 61 and Highway something else in the Delta in Mississippi. And mm -hmm. um, so, you know the story. Do you know the story? Yeah, of course. Did, did you see the I had movie? A, I the, had, no, I didn't see the movie. Uh, and I think the movie's lousy, um, but Steve Vai is amazing. So the conversation made me think about Robert Johnson, and I listened to some of the music. And, you know, the, the I think some of those most amazing, innovative, truly pure, talented uh, musicians that that sort of emerged from that sort of post-slavery experience in the South were playing with ill-tuned, broken, partially strung instruments, and they made beautiful music with them. And they were breaking the rules because there were no rules ever taught. And they were playing it and, you know, from out of nowhere, they weren't thinking about minor triads and, mm -hmm. you know, um, caged neck models and whatever. And there was, you know, and they didn't have YouTube to, to watch people teaching guitar. So like, I think that there's that, there's that innate sense, um, that, you know, I could give you a tuba and you may never have played it. I'll bet you that you can make music now. Granted, you might be using it as a drum, not blowing a note through it. But, you know, I think they're, they're those people who are multi-talented. And, yeah. and and it just sort of happens. But, wow, so we went off. We went off. <laughs> we uh, we, yeah, we off left the, the reservation a long time ago. I, yeah. I do want to add one thing to that, that I think that I completely buy into what you're saying. That there are some people who can go way outside of the rules and make things work and, and turn their tuba into a, an instrument, even if they're unfamiliar to it. But I think that it's sort of like in the same way that religious people tend to turn to God when they can't explain something. <laughs> I think it's kind of a parallel, right? Like maybe it's just that we don't have rules to explain how they're breaking the rules or we haven't read enough of the fine print to really understand why breaking character in certain places makes sense. Maybe. I don't know. Just a theory. No, I, I'm, I'm open to that. It's entirely possible that... There are no rules, really. We create them just because out of the, you know, like, so the breaking of the rule is just as much a rule in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Just um, as a necessity to describe the, the system. Yeah, well, the, yeah. Rule was, the rule was defined uh, with only partial information. And yeah. Then thing, things have changed. Yeah, I, I suppose. Um, you know, the, there was never a point where there was a probe stuck in someone's head and I'm, I'm in like in the 1800s in, you know, Leipzig, Germany, where these ideas were first being uh, developed, but there was no, there was no MRI to say when someone looks at this thing, this part of their brain is being aroused, you know? So the, a, a, a lot of, a lot of what we, what we know about as, as a psychological truth about the way that humans behave, um, is is almost like reified science. The, the the first big question that psychology faced was really a philosophical one about where the mind is vis-a-vis -vis the brain. Where is right. the person? Who is the uh, 
you know, is it this organism and what, what is it that makes you a, you know, sentient ape or whatever it is, right? And so these were the big questions that they were trying to, they, they were trying to address. And meanwhile, there were people like Phineas Gage who had a big piece of metal jammed in his head by accident and he had changed his personality. And this was the first time ever that there was a living, breathing example of someone who had had physical damage to their brain that changed their emotional presentation of self, you know? So like, and that was all done without an MRI and it, or CAT scan or any other sort of, I can see inside your brain while you're thinking sort of technology. So the, the, the rules of that, that evolved the theories about human behavior were sort of like being up, they were being, uh, they were, they were coming, coming to shape after the, almost after the fact, like, and, and we've been able to measure the efficacy or the veritability of those theories now that we have better assessment. Yeah, and all of these things do get revised over time. It's not to say that the definitive rules were ever decided on at any point. In particular, one that comes to mind is our understanding of colorblindness has definitely changed over the years. There are several different types of colorblindness stemming from different physical causes and means, and we have sort of one term to describe all of them, even though that maybe colorblindness is the general term, and there's, what is it, tetrachromiosis or whatever it is that describes your red-green colorblind or completely grayscale colorblind. We have better descriptions of those things and more specifics around it, um, but the original rules and our original understanding of it has come from a need to describe what's there, and we've gotten better at uh, describing that and characterizing it uh, and relating to it over time. I suppose it's the same as the the uh, spectrum of autism as well. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and maybe even the what had been once uh, believed to be a binary distinction of gender. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's all, uh, we're all graded on a curve, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that we've reached that stunning conclusion, I think it's probably a good time to step back and talk about what we're talking about on some level. Everything that we are talking about today or the things that we wanted to um, re re relay today have to do with psychology. In particular, I guess there are, there are quite a few different subsectors of psychology, ironically enough. Um, and, and the few that we tend to usually talk about have to do with cognition, cognitive psychology, um, behavioral psychology, I think, is, is kind of where we'll be landing today. But I, I guess the goal is to really understand and give a 100-level description of psychology and how uh, it can play into your, your role as a designer of things, be it software or visuals or you know, audio products, buildings, you name it. Psychology is something that uh, if you've never studied it before, if you've never read about it, uh, it's a powerful tool and it's something that can be surprisingly helpful uh, in describing things that you may already be doing. We make decisions based on how we understand people consume information. And then we also make decisions about what it is that we want to compel them to do. The, sim the, the simple design of a website where you want to have somebody do some sort of an action, what are the things that you need to do to present them with um, decision support so that there's a compelling reason for them to push the button you want them to push. And, um, and all of that is informed by, by psychology. A lot of it is stuff that we take for granted, thoroughly take for granted. I think that it's, it's worth considering 
how important the psychology in is in your design, uh, regardless of what it is that you're designing. The decision to, I mean, even if you're not designing, this, the psychological context is absolutely worth considering. Yeah. And that so can be, to, to put that in concrete terms, that's, that's the difference in understanding someone's behavior when they come to you to, let's say, Amazon, for sake of example, the mindset they're in when they're looking to shop for something that's everyday, like buying laundry detergent versus buying something like a television, which can be a thousands of dollars of expense. Uh, and the way that their decisions change when they do those things and the way their mindset changes when they do those things is powerful and important uh, and something that's not to be taken for granted when you're designing experiences at any of those levels. Yeah. So if we break it down really simply, the, you know, the Amazon example is a really good one, which is, um, you know, you can measure that you can measure a number of different ways that somebody had reached a satisfactory end for what they set out to do. And with analytics, there's a great deal of insight into the different parts that people take and at what point they they convert to sale or they disappear. We had been talking uh, at some point about uh, behaviorism and the, um, and I suppose it makes sense for us to do some definitions, but with the, you know, what are the decision points? How do people make the decision to buy something? What kind of information are they evaluating when they, when they make a choice? And are the choices different when the price is different yeah and and you know the the pricing category so like you know if i said to you mike there's a candy bar and it's three bucks you'd buy it and if i said mike the candy bar is four bucks then you'd buy it right and it's a dollar difference and it's four bucks but if i said it's a dollar or it's twelve dollars that's a different story yeah sure but it's a candy and bar so it shouldn't be twelve dollars <laughs> the, the important thing to understand is that a lot of the time the assumptions that you might make about how people choose what to buy and when, and especially with, with pricing, can be very, very counterintuitive. Uh, in particular, one point of inflection that seems to often turn things on their head is when something is free uh, versus when something is slightly more than free versus full price. So some of the stuff we're, we're, I will be referencing, at least it comes from uh, a great book that we will drop on, on the website or in the notes somewhere um, called Predictably Irrational. Uh, but there are several examples that are given that have to do with um, setting up a stand in public. I think it was on a college campus uh, with a big bowl that says free candy uh, and standing behind it and watching people take candy. And uh, Of course, having an observer there makes a difference, but the behavior uh, when someone knows that the candy is free is, is significantly different from when someone pays for the candy. So if they put up a sign that said free candy, people might come and take one or two pieces of candy, but if they pay for it, the behavior is almost exactly the opposite of what you would expect. So it was observed that when an experiment like this was done, they, they put out a sign that said the candy is five cents or a penny or something like that. People would put in a nickel, put in a penny and take exactly one piece of candy because they felt like they paid for it and they were entitled to that one piece of candy. Whereas when it was free, they might take two or three or four. The value of the physical item itself, the candy theoretically doesn't change. But because there's money being applied, it's funny how behavior changes. And it behaves in a way that people behave in a way that is counterintuitive, right? You're paying for something and you feel entitled to less in that case, which is, to me at least, extremely surprising. Yeah. So uh, this is a whole field of uh, behavioral economics. And it's uh, and it, it's uh, it's very fascinating. The, the other book 
that's worth mentioning is the paradox of choice, which also sort of brings brings a lot of these questions to the or these ideas to their logical extreme. At what point is too many decisions counterproductive? If you go to the store and there's only one choice, you feel sort of strong-armed into making one choice. And you, if there are two choices, then it's like, okay, which one do I prefer? Three is the magic number. So that's always good. But when there are 30 different types of genes, then is that where the decision is so overwhelming that it becomes difficult to make a choice? I think it's important for us to go one step back, and that is to talk a bit about decisions, right? And we, we are still talking about design. And so, you know, the um, when you're designing a, a set of options for someone to to choose from, or when you're designing a single product, and um, and they're going to be using it, decisions about using it, or decisions to purchase that product, or decisions, uh, I don't know, all these decisions are generally categorized as those being either rational choices, non-rational choices, or irrational choices. So an, an irrational choice is one which we believe is, uh, you know, informed by data and fact. So it's a, it's a conscious weighing of the pros and cons um, with all the information that's available. And the information may, of course, not be data at all, but it may just be that thoughtful consideration of the the, the pros and cons from your perspective, when you're making a decision over whether you're going to get the fries or the salad, you're making choices. Um, and all the, all the variables um, are part of that decision. So the price, how you're feeling, the weather, what the person next to you is getting, but that's all rational. I think irrational is like heat of the moment, crazed, like my jacket's on fire, kind of like there's no rationality. And Mike, tell me what non-rational is. It's a quiz. Yeah, so I, I often confuse irrational and non-rational, which I think is the inclination that this, this is what tends to happen. But if I had to define it, non-rational is more along the lines of you make a decision that uh, happens in the absence of the logic that's, that's readily available for you rather than maybe an off the cuff, my pants are on fire response. It's I'm going to buy the expensive Mercedes because expensive Mercedes has to be, well, even that's not good. I, I don't I don't know. So I, I do get into trouble trying to define this. Um, and one of the things that I struggle with with all of these is how bias comes into it. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm going to back myself into a corner no matter what. Well, I can tell you that I not so recently, not too recently, made a non-rational decision that I was completely aware of as being non-rational. Mm, okay. I, 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 I wanted to buy a guitar amp, and I had thought about trying to remove the amount of technology from my life when it came to something like a guitar amp, and I wanted to get a, a tube amp with no... Uh, built-in modeling and effects, nothing modern, something that the parts are user-replaceable. It's not a software update, um, just because I'm surrounded by things that constantly need updating and they don't work and the like. So you've yeah. been there, right? I, the, the, I want to be, I want the purest pure. And so I had narrowed down my choices and I was absolutely going to buy um, uh, an orange uh, amp and cab and 
head and it was it sounded really cool but there was something that i was trying really to get a really clean jazz tone and i like the orange sounded awesome but i could never just get it clean and then the guy at the store pointed me to a different amp and i ended up buying that hmm. and that was the non-rational choice because despite the fact that i'd gone into this with a very specific set of requirements in i ended up going in the completely opposite direction and i bought it an amp that is Bluetooth enabled with Wi-Fi. What am I thinking? I'm just setting myself up for heartburn. That's a non-rational choice. The irrational choice would have been, I, you know, like the house is burning. I need to buy a guitar amp. <laughs> right. An easy metaphor for that is the rational choice is I'm going to buy a salad because it's good for me. The non-rational choice is I'm buying French fries because damn my health, I want French fries. Yeah. And an irrational choice is I'm going to burn the building down because that's what I feel like. <laughs> yeah, I think the, the irrational was ill-informed and you didn't even think about the yeah, outcome. Yeah. Okay, so I didn't even read the whole menu and I saw something and didn't realize that there was a better choice later on. Mm, yep. Yeah, interesting. Okay, that, that's actually a really good way to, to define these things. I, I guess the question I always have, and I'm, I'm curious to hear your interpretation of this then, is presuming I'm making a rational choice and, and this, the salad versus french fries thing is probably not a good option here. But let's say I've evaluated all of my options and the rational choice, um, I'm buying a car. The rational choice is to go and buy a Honda because it's reliable and it's in my price range and I can afford it and it'll last five years and whatever else. Uh, how does bias come into rationality and irrationality? So what if uh, my neighbor had a Honda that was a total lemon and was giving them problems for years and years and years? And although that's clearly an outlier uh, in, in, in the quality of, of Honda's products um, that influences my decision. Do you think that counts as, as still rational uh, because it's based on my experience or do you think that's um, straying into the territory of non-rational or irrational? Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I think that it's probably, uh, that it probably strays into the non-rational, I guess. In, so in the car buying example, and I mean, buying a car and, owning a car is a really good, it's a very rich uh, example for a lot of these phenomena. You've got a number of constraints already in mind. Uh, if And even if you think that they're actual real constraints, like say the money that you can afford to pay, amazingly, there's always more money that you can pay. Um, and there are also ways that the car companies can extract that additional money from you. And, you know, it's like the, you have an idea of how much you want to pay and the, and it's based on some calculation, and maybe that is all the money that you can pay. And there's a deal then that'll have you paying just slightly less for slightly longer. You know? Yeah. And that's so yeah. those are those games. But but the so the the rational decision is I know that I need a car with all wheel drive, and so like that's a real category of car. There's there's a very specific outcome that you have in mind, which is I. I know I need an all-wheel drive car because I believe it's going to achieve these outcomes. And um, the non-rational choices that we make are the ones where we have like that sort of guilty smirk and say, well, I know it was frivolous, but I thought, why not get the heated seats? Or, you know, so the that's the non-rational. It's like, I want to be price conscious. I want all-wheel drive. And, oh yeah, well, what's another $20 a month? I think that the... Then the the bias, though, to decide which things to buy, uh, you know, they, there's the curmudgeonly, uh, it's just another thing that's going to break. Well, how do you know that? 
And it's like there's a top of mind consciousness that a particular case has in your brain where it's yeah. like, no, because the neighbor once had a broken power window and that really stuck in my brain somehow. And so whenever the choice is, do you want the power windows? I always think of my neighbor that one time, and I've just generalized it now that all power windows are just going to end up in tears. Right. Yeah. And framed like that, I think that definitely sounds more non-rational than irrational. Um, certainly not rational because I think to be rational, it would have to be a full survey. And, you know, yep. if, if you went and went to consumer reports and decided that, you know, out of every 10,000 cars, there are 400 with problems and that's too much for you to, to take on as a risk, that seems perfectly rational. But a hearsay anecdote of an N equals one subset is got to be, I think, non-rational. So I hate to do this to you then, Mike, hmm. but we're going to talk about Volkswagens. Oh, goodness. Right? Yeah. Now, now, in fairness, you were trying very, very hard to fight against what I was suggesting to you as a widespread problem. And, yep. and I said, well, the, you know, I had a VW and we had these very specific problems that never, <laughs> ever disappeared. And the way that the company handled it was really poor. And that was the last time we'd ever buy a Volkswagen ever again in the history of like ever. And you, you knew this, you oh, knew yeah. this piece of information, but yes. you know, and I don't know how many other people had said like, oh, you know, I had a VW and these things happened. And so you were wise then to not assume that every Volkswagen is going to be like this. But why did you not want to believe that? Yeah. So, and, and that's not to say that I don't value your opinion because you, you're certainly someone that I turn to for feedback on all manners of things. And I think you, you would vouch for that. Maybe to give some more backstory, I ended up buying a GTI a few years ago, new off the lot at a Volkswagen dealership. Um, and in the past through two, almost three years that I've owned it, I've had, let's call it half a dozen issues that have warranted repair, um, warranty repair, as it were. Uh, and Andrew is the first one I tell every single time I'm on my way to the dealership uh, with my hat in hand begging for them to fix my car to make it work like they said it would. I think to answer your question, part of the reason that I ended up with a Volkswagen has to do more with the non-rational than the irrational. I am definitely someone who will go and read every review on the planet available from every source. And so by the time I had settled on the couple of cars that I was looking at this last time around when I was buying a car. It really came down to the things that sold me on. So the, the direct comparison, the car that I was going between was this Volkswagen GTI and a Ford Focus RS. So I wanted a hatchback for uh, many reasons, not the least of which was that I was carting around a lot of stuff for my band at the time. And I was between the two cars and the, the final decision was after a test drive saying effectively all else was, was equal with looks, right? I, I'm happy with the way both cars look and all that. The things that made me decide to go for the Volkswagen, ironically enough, are the things that have been breaking. Um, mostly having to do with technology packages incorporated into the car, which obviously adds complexity. But for some concrete examples, the things that have failed on this car recently are the backup camera, the uh, entertainment system that uh, my phone plugs into and Apple Play or Apple CarPlay and Android Auto integrate with, and the sunroof. A sunroof is something I could take or leave, but both cars would have had anyway, I think. And so I was definitely far into the past the territory of rational is what got me to i think deciding that i needed a hatchback with good gas mileage as opposed to the monster car i had before irrational would have been uh, i walked onto the the volkswagen lot saw a gti and didn't think about anything else and just bought it which is not where i was at uh, but non-rational is definitely 
ultimately uh, where I ended up nonetheless. And I also think, to, to be fair, it would have been non-rational if I didn't buy the Volkswagen, given your feedback too, right? Well, I, uh, uh, potentially, um, I guess, I guess the, there are a number of things that would go into defining something as non-rational. I mm -hmm. think the, you know, the, the, the rational approach is that you were seeking data and that was both anecdotal and you probably looked online and forums and you read reviews and in this magazines like the consumer reports are based to support to satisfy that need for rational uh, rationality in our decision making, mm -hmm. and they're those um, you know really great icons that they use to talk about the you know a scale of one to five with excellent and poor, and so we can picture those and we can take those da those data points with us, and we feel satisfied that we're making wise choices for ourselves. Yeah. We're thinking about the outcomes. If you had decided that you wouldn't even consider looking at a Volkswagen solely based on my description of the experiences that we've had, then that that might be a non-rational response because that's not really enough. It shouldn't be enough information to have you make a wholesale decision to say no Volkswagen ever again. Yeah. Um, in many ways, our decision never to buy another Volkswagen is also somewhat non-rational in the sense that there are many Volkswagens that seem to be not at the dealership every week. Um, although your story tends to bolster mine. And so I'm thinking <laughs> like, no, I don't think I'm going to do that. But I guess the, the, uh, the irrational would be that you've been given a, you've been given a budget. You've been told that you need a car that can fit, um, a family of, um, young soccer playing children and a golden retriever, and it needs all wheel drive. And on the way to the boring minivan dealership, you drive by a, Chevy dealership and you see a Corvette and you say, I'm going to do that. Yeah. And you take and you spend more money than you can. So you've given no, you don't care at all about, you haven't even considered the outcome that you're now going to be, um, you know, in, in grave debt. And you've got a car that can fit two people, not, a, you know, a family and certainly not, you're not driving that in the snow. I think that that would be the, the comparison. But, but there was something also that made you make the decision to buy the VW over the Ford because mm -hmm. like when you did the rational lining up of things, it's like, well, they, they all, you know, you check the, check the box next to all those requirements you have. And yet there was something maybe intangible that you can't put exactly put your finger on, no pun intended, but there was something that in the experience of driving the one or the other, the, despite the data that you had, you made the choice to go with it. And, sure. and I think that the, the thing that was resonant for you may very well have been the way the door sounded when it closed, the way that the switches work on the dashboard, the way that the shifter feels in your hand. It could have been the smell of leather in the seats. It could have been almost mm -hmm. anything. Yeah. But something that you experienced in these very comparable uh, situations uh, with these very comparable products meant something more to you, meant enough that you went in a, in a direction despite knowing what you knew one way or the other, right? So you could, I mean, this is how we can justify a, a deviation, a non-rational deviation from what we would have expected us to, you know, to have done. And when and, you frame it that way, it's really interesting to think of someone making a decision like this 
entirely based on something that is irrelevant to the rest of the experience. So for example, if I ended up going with the GTI because I really liked that, they sat me down on a couch and gave me an espresso at the dealership while I waited, right? That has nothing to do with the experience of the next five years or whatever of owning the car will be like. Um, but it's crazy that that bias, that, that, that experience could uh, push you over the line to go with the Volkswagen and forget about the, the focus. But that's absolutely what we're talking about. And some of those things as the designer of the experience of buying a car, I, I don't even know if I would consider this a dark pattern, but it gives you maybe even an unfair advantage uh, to do some of those things to make your experience key into those parts of the brain that that send out the right pheromones for someone to want to buy your thing, even if there are numbers supporting it that the Volkswagen is worse than the Ford, et cetera, et cetera. I, you know, you you have touched on uh, on a really really important point. So you remember that you and I and an, uh, another colleague of ours were in Paris, mm -hmm. and we were at the Atelier Renault. Oh yeah, a, the car dealership for Renaults happens to be like on the Champs Elysees, uh -huh. but they had created a dealership experience that was something beyond magical for you to beautiful yeah and yeah. you could experience the cars and just like any other dealership like cars were there you could sit in them you could ask questions but you could look in the trunk you could look at the choices for the paint and you could see the you know you could make a deal mm -hmm. and um and yet there was so much more there were the touchscreen interactive um, installations and the photo booth and all of those things that were to engage and delight and so forth. Now, the th those things certainly come into play to elevate your experience and to give you a sense of what you were what you were buying that may or may not have been accurate. Yeah. So the <laughs> the the place where this dissonance sort of really sort of kicks you hard is when you go to the you know, you do the, 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 um, you go shopping at the atelier and you get macarons and espresso. And you think that every time you bring your Renault in for service at your local dealership, because you know that they're not doing service at a garage <laughs> on the Champs Elysees. <laughs> and so you're, you're getting the car serviced at a place that looks very different from this guaranteed right. and it's going to be where they change oil yeah. and so if there is a coffee that's available to you it's not brought to you on a on a tray with macaroons and it's not going to be beautiful uh espresso cup and uh and plate setting and all that it's going to be um, a machine that spits out a dixie cup and spews miserable grainy coffee into it if you're lucky and mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. so and i guess at the point where like things become suddenly real yeah you either feel like i don't know but there's a way that we justify it because we never want to take ownership of our bad choices so be like well of course the espresso was at the fancy place and i didn't expect that i would get espresso every time i get my oil changed but you know that they do right <laughs> but creating those experiences can make important connections the same way that well you ready for this I didn't even expect to see this full circle here. Hit me. Way that when the bell rang, Pavlov's dog was like, "I'm gonna get fed." Yeah, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. That you pair these, you pair the experience, the stimuli from the experiences, and you make these associations. Yeah. And and so 
when it comes to something like a car, which has, you know, there are all sorts of interesting twists to it because it's a luxury item, but it's also a requirement, but you're out there, it's like clothes, it's a depiction yeah. of one's wealth and style and it, your priorities and... Um, it's far beyond utility. It can be. It can yeah. be. And and the the justifications or rationalizations that we make for buying these things, and you know, like paying extra for the gold lettering on the Toyota Corolla. I don't I personally I don't understand that. Right. <laughs> like yeah. it's it's a Toyota Corolla. Like, yeah, it's the goldiest one, but it's still a Corolla. Nothing wrong with a Corolla. Right, but you, but you made a choice to get the gold letters on the Corolla, so something was wrong with the Corolla in your mind. <laughs> so, but you could have gotten a Camry instead, but no, you couldn't get the gold letters because you don't have enough money to buy the Camry with the gold letters. So, you know. So, a few <laughs> things about this. I I, I want to say first that we're going to need to continue this discussion because uh, I'm going about to go into a few more uh, automotive anecdotes that will take a fair bit of time and hopefully kind of wrap the discussion for now. But there's a lot uh, having to do directly with software on this topic that I want to discuss um, yes. because I think it's a very interesting thing and some of these patterns are really cool. Before we get to that, and that, that'll have to be the next time we talk, um, two really interesting examples of car companies who are taking exactly what we're talking about and, and putting twists on them to work, hopefully, ideally in their favor. The first of which, which and maybe the most obvious, is Tesla, which has tried to eschew the entire tr traditional dealer experience where it's actually difficult to walk into a lot full of Teslas where you can go and compare the bits and bobs on all the Teslas. And it's part of their policy that they actually don't negotiate on price at all. So the price of a Tesla is the price of a Tesla. You can go on the website, see exactly what it's going to cost you, decide that you want a Tesla, and that's what you're going to pay. But if you want to go buy a Tesla, you're going to get the same experience everywhere. It's standardized to that extent, and it also tends to be nicer. So when your Tesla shows up, if it's not delivered to you directly, you go to the dealership, you have a wonderful experience, they coddle you and do whatever they need to do to make you feel like you're buying something elite and special, and you end up going home with this wonderful futuristic piece of technology, but still you feel good about that because it's a Tesla and it's the future and it's electric and you have all these, these bits and bobs that, that feel great. The other end of that spectrum, uh, if you ask me, is Hyundai, um, which is, without being too mean, probably a bottom third manufacturer when it comes to the general experience of going to buy a Hyundai. Hyundai dealerships are not great luxurious places where you'll get an espresso, typically. There might be outliers. But if you buy the top of the line Hyundai, which is the Equus, which is, is I don't know, probably an eighty dollars or $90,000 car at this point, if you buy one of those, the experience of buying one is utterly and completely different from buying any other Hyundai, to the point where you can buy an Equus without ever setting foot at a Hyundai dealership if you don't want to actually be seen amongst the normal humans buying their Elantras. You buy the $80,000 Hyundai, the car itself doesn't actually have gigantic Hyundai logos on it anywhere because they want it to feel more elite and differentiate the experience from it. And for the entire lifespan of you owning that car, if you ever have a problem with your Hyundai that, that it needs to be fixed, they will come and pick up the car from you wherever you are, take it and service it and bring it back to you so that you never have to experience the dealership. And by doing that, you're, you are buying a Hyundai and not having any of the downfalls of coming to a Hyundai dealership. It still feels exclusive and magical and special and better and different than buying a car somewhere else. And I don't know how successful that tactic has been for Hyundai, but it's certainly cheaper than having to go and rebuild all of the dealerships to make them feel exclusive in like a, a you know, a European uh, cafe or something like that. And that's exactly what we're talking about. I think it's this whole topic of behavioral psychology has to do with 
um, giving yourself an advantage wherever possible when you're building something or designing something to key into the, the pe parts of people's mind that they don't necessarily know is working, but will will benefit you. And that's a gigantic long rant, but I think I've more or less wrapped up what I was thinking there. Yeah, no. Uh, and one little twist, if Hyundai were to try to update all their dealerships so that they felt more exclusive with a European plush feel, the possibility that they would disenfranchise their budget priced, budget minded shoppers mm. would be very, would be, would be, I mean, I think it would be very likely because yeah. if you're buying something that's budget priced and economic, you know, it's attuned to the economic mind, the economist's mindset, or they're trying to, someone be trying to be economical, they would see this plush uh, dealership, maybe assume that they can't afford the car that they thought that they could afford. Yeah, it absolutely cuts both ways. Absolutely. Yeah.